Yes, it's the Foghorn, and it is time for the Cavashoops podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. In conjunction with the Navy League's Sea, Air, and Space Global Maritime Exposition, we present this special edition of the Cavashoops podcast, focusing on a single defense supplier. Our show coverage of Sea, Air, and Space is sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries. Today, we feature BAE Systems Ship Repair, and with us is Paul Smith, the division's vice president and general manager. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you, and good morning. One of the biggest single ship commercial ship repairs for the U.S. Navy is BAE Systems. Over the years, the company has purchased shipyards in most of the Navy's fleet concentration areas, including Norfolk, San Diego, and Jacksonville. Paul, what's the state of your business today? Uh, it's it's pretty good right now. We've had an interesting uh, couple of years. As of right now, uh, we've had been able to accomplish a great deal of work for the Navy. We also still continue to do some commercial repair work down in Florida. Uh, but I'd probably say the last two years for us, uh, very proud of the workforce having battled through COVID. Uh, if you can imagine uh, being in the tight confines of a ship over the last two years, uh, we were able to stay open 24-7, uh, certainly working through uh, all the precautions necessary uh, to keep the workforce safe, uh, but we were able to stay open over the last two years within COVID. Uh, looking forward, obviously, we're looking at the volume of work out there, uh, making various decisions around infrastructure, uh, but pretty happy right, right now with where we sit. So the uh, as, as we speak, the 23 defense uh, budget has just been presented. When, when you look at that budget, what is there goodness in there for your business or do you see problems? Uh, right now, it's it's a process watching it go through as it, as it goes through the Navy and then ultimately through the Department of Defense and Congress. Um, one of the things we are concerned about, as we've seen a year ago and upcoming, is the early decommissioning of ships. Right. Well, that obviously represents less market for all of us in the ship repair industry to participate in. And so in those cases, as we model three and five years going forward, we see less volume than we would have seen in the same model two years ago. So it's of concern. Uh, we'll continue to monitor that process uh, as they finalize the 23 budget. But it's something, something, certainly something that gives us a lot of concern. So when you talk about the, the ship decommissionings, I know that you have uh, you've been working on the cruisers. There have been some cruisers in particular that have been out of service for some years being brought back and coming to mind like Gettysburg at, uh, and, in Norfolk and I think Calpin's out in San Diego. Um, and, there's, and, there's, and there's more, there's five of them all, all together. Um, but there are others that, they're, they're, I mean, is that, is that what you're looking at? So the, the reduction in volume of the cruisers? Yeah, so the reduction of volume of the cruisers is part of it, but there's also been some other decommissionings that are out there. Um, you know, as you see in the 23 proposal, some LCS ships potentially. Um, you know, we'll have to continue to see where that's going to go. But it, it, part of it is the cruisers, but it's also some other classes of ships. What does that unpredictability do to you guys? I mean, I think, um, and, and I'll just speak for myself. I mean, until I learned a little bit more as a Naval officer, you, you know, you sort of rolled your eyes when you heard industry 
complain about the unpredictability because it, it appeared to you that it just meant lost profit, but it's a lot more than that for you, right? I mean, it affects your ability to plan and be prepared for, for other things. So can you talk a little bit about how that unpredictability, you know, ships are in, ships are out, the fleet's going to be this size, it's going to be that size. What, what does that mean for your business? Yeah, it's, it's a huge item for us. Two major categories. One is around infrastructure investments, and the second is around the workforce itself. So on the infrastructure and investment side, this is a capital intensive business, uh, maintaining the docks themselves or ultimately at some point uh, getting the new dock, maintaining the piers and the facility is pretty extensive. And so that's part of our business process to decide whether we should make more or less investment. So that unpredictability makes it tougher to make those long-term investments. Because when you make that investment and you put that capacity online, you have to be able to utilize it. And if you don't, it adds to your overhead rate um, and then makes you less competitive even more so. And then you get less work, which will drive your rates up. The second piece is around the workforce. So uh, our workforce is highly trained. We're uh, put a lot of training in, whether it's around welding, machining, um, and also around safety. So being able to have a workforce uh, and quantity of people uh, is something that takes a great deal of time. So you can't just ramp up in a short period of time. Um, so that unpredictability also can change how we look at things as far as employment levels uh, going forward. On our uh, sister podcast, um, uh, a few months back, we had a chance to speak to Mike Petters, um, uh, of HII at the time, Mike talked about, you know, lessons learned and they're very similar to what you said about COVID. But one of the things that he expanded upon was, is that they are seeing a willingness from workers or, or less of a willingness from workers to want to work the, um, the traditional extra shifts and that it, that COVID not, not just from a, Hey, are folks coming to work and are they healthy, but that they were seeing all sorts of other changes in the workforce. Can you talk a little bit about when you, you know when you talk about planning for the future? Are you seeing changes in that workforce beyond just the number of people that you're able to hire to work on ships? Have have you seen different dynamics over the last year? Yeah, I'd, I'd say the dynamics um, probably less driven by COVID and more uh, things around the economy and different industries. Uh, depending on the types of positions, the ability for some people from a hybrid working environment, you know. In addition to our team that's physically on the ship, we depend heavily on our procurement team, contracts team, uh, scheduling. And so those positions, um, we've seen a lot of workforce dynamic changes uh, and it's affect our retention rate because people are potentially have access to jobs that they wouldn't have had in the past because they can do the job and still remain in the home port here of Norfolk, uh, but participate in a different industry. So really that workforce availability or um, our ability to have a, a greater pool of people uh, to go through is, is tough. As an example, we invest in that though. We run an apprentice school here in Norfolk. Uh, we take individuals that are direct from high school, graduated from high school uh, or early career, and we invest a number of years in them in order to get them up to a certain standard if it was around welding or machining. And so that's, that's an investment in our part. Um, the other piece is I, I participate and BAE participates with the repair industries uh, like Visra here um, and the ship repair industry as a whole. And they do a very good job of pulling us together 
and also identifying the quantity of workforce that's needed and putting some investment in them. But there's no question. I mean, this is a this is a struggle for all of us is to uh, is to have the ability to access the quantity uh, of people with the right amount of training, and it's a combination of our own training, uh, but also working as with the industry and the repair associations as well. I'm a little curious how the shipyards work with each other in the different markets. So you and GD NASCO, for example, are next door to each other in Norfolk and San Diego. Uh, right. you know, each of you has a certain ebb and flow in the jobs you get. You also compete for similar resources in each market, including, as you just said, the workers. Um, how do you cooperate with each other? How, how, does, that, how does that work? There, there, there's a dynamic there between companies. Yeah, yeah. so a couple of things. Um, the first, as mentioned, is around the, the local ship repair association. So there's one here in Norfolk, and then there's one overall. So uh, one of the things the Navy does a good job of is it meets with us as an industry as, as a regular basis. So myself, uh, leadership from NASCO and some other competitors are there as well. And we'll go through the common topics. So they could be around volume. Uh, but another concentration point or interface is around safety. Um, for us as an industry and us BAE as a site, we do pretty well. Uh, rate-wise, but we're always battling trying to make this as safe as possible. So that's another interface point for us. And then less so than the past, but there are times where they might source from us or we might source from them. So that also gives you some interface points as well. So in terms of competition, you did have a shipyard out in Pearl Harbor um, in Hawaii, where there's really not a whole lot of infrastructure. Uh, you ran that for a few years and you can, you closed it a few years. You get, you got out, you got out of Hawaii. What mm -hmm. was the story there? What, how, how did that not work out? Yeah, for us, uh, we made that decision a couple of years ago. Uh, it made sense when we looked at the total, uh, volume there, uh, in our setup, as well as the contracting model had changed there as well. So in a fixed price environment, um, with that amount of volume and the amount of presence, we would have to have there, um, it didn't make sense for us. We, we needed a constant underlying work volume, which we didn't see was gonna happen. So the timing for us made sense a couple of years ago to make that decision. And then we finished our, our last ship in the summer of last year. Chris started out the conversation by talking about the, the budget um, and, you know, one of the, I guess, underlying assumptions of the budget, this budget and pre, the last couple budgets is that we're now in a competitive environment. Um, and, you know, if you listen to naval leaders, they talk about the likelihood of competition and then perhaps conflict continues to rise. How does that change your calculus, if at all? I mean, obviously, up until now, your, um, I guess, a, a huge planning factor was really um, how hard the ships were ridden, if you will, right? You know, how long deployments went um, mm -hmm. and, and the types of things that they did. Does a potential combat environment change your planning assumption at all? And are you talking to the Navy about that? I don't want you to say anything that'll get, you know, that'll get you in trouble. But I mean, just I want to know if that thinking has um, has kind of reached your industry yet. Oh, definitely. And, and we would classify it as surge capacity. So the surge capacity could come from what you refer to if, you know, if there's a military situation or war, but also that surge capacity can come from a couple of other unexpected things. Uh, the ship runs into unexpected maintenance issues, uh, collision. Um, and then also sometimes what can happen is 
there can be a surge of work because a particular task force comes back or has unnaturally uh, stayed out longer than intended, which is something that's going on right now with a few ships uh, with what's going on in Europe. So uh, it, as, as hard as the Navy tries and as hard as we try, the, the, the volume doesn't remain completely flat and there's some peaks and valleys. The challenge that presents us is the workforce itself and the infrastructure. Um, it's harder to match that because really for us, almost all of my work is from the U.S. Navy. It's, it becomes very difficult for me to, during the low times, to go into some other types of work, uh, whether it's commercial ship repair or some other aspects um, such as Coast Guard work given the nature of what we do. So for us, we're really highly dependent on, on one market. One of the things we are working on, and it does help us uh, in our Jacksonville facility is to be able to surge more into the commercial market uh, given the set of circumstances. And so then those low points are covered. So when the higher points come that, that you referred to, we, we can cover that. Um, and the Navy's contending with this as well. Uh, they recognize that um, it's always not going to be a level load and that there needs to be some infrastructure that, that whether it's dry docks or piers that can handle uh, that surge if it does happen. So as we talk about building, you know, a 355 ship or a 400 ship Navy, should we also then be, be adding a line about and giving more money to industry for that infrastructure, right? I mean, you know, we, we sort of have a bottleneck now if we grow the fleet there's going to be a bottleneck in the future as the maintenance on those new ships, uh, you know, eventually catches up. Yeah, definitely. It's got to be a holistic approach. I mean, the Navy contends with this themselves in their own shipyards with when, when they work on submarines and aircraft carriers. Um, and we're going to have to do it in, in conjunction. Uh, but for us, it's, it's the short-term vision over the next couple of years. We see, as, as we talked earlier, we see the volume uh, going down, not up. And so we, we, we have to match with that. It, in longer term, if it is going to become a 355 ship Navy, there's going to have to be some adjustments and we'll work hand in hand. The good news there is uh, the communication with the Navy is extremely good about where the ships are at, uh, when, they, when we think they're coming in, um, and some of the adjustments are going to be made. So they, they make a lot of effort, um, and we referred to it earlier with the industry, on the repair associations to sit down with us and explain the volume. And then at some point as a business, we're gonna to have to make a decision about whether we do make those long-term investments or not. So one of the fundamental relationships between you and your primary customer, the Navy, is the structure of contracts and how they're, how they're, how they're all put together. So for many years, ship repair yards, <clears throat> excuse me, built on bid on single ships. Then the Navy started bundling contracts. They wanted they wanted to award bunches of bunches of ships at the same time. This essentially freezed out a lot of the smaller yards who couldn't compete on that level. Industry resized itself to meet that demand. BAE was a prime example of that. Now the Navy has switched back to largely single ship contracts. That that makes it I think makes it harder for you in, in, in a bigger structure. How where where does that stand with you today? How 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 does that affect your work? Yeah, there's no question when you talk with uh, the historians here that have been for a while that the pendulum's gone back and forth, uh, fixed price, cost plus, fixed price. Uh, we're obviously in that fixed price cycle now. Um, 
even in that in that cycle, there are some instances where the Navy will horizontally bundle a couple ships. So horizontal being one ship will follow the other. So that'll give you some visibility ahead of time. But there's no question that um, you know we we bid for the most part one ship at a time. So when we're trying to predict volume for the next year or two, one or two wins or one or two losses. Uh, can make or break the year as far as trying to keep that balance in in the workload. On the competition side, um, we embrace that. I mean, in in my career, it's pretty much 100% been in the fixed price environment. Uh, you really you work really hard to compete. You try to be productive, uh, high quality, do the job once instead of multiple times. Uh, really conscious about the cost that you have and being effective with the dollars that you do spend. And so that's just a constant battle for us. Our competitors do the same thing. We embrace the competition uh, and we'll continue to work within that structure. So at Sea Airspace, you're going to be on a panel, I believe, on Wednesday. Uh, what will you be talking about? What's the message you want to convey? Yeah, so it's going to be a great panel. We got representatives from both the Navy and the Coast Guard there and, and industry. Um, I, I think really it's an effective tool to answer some of the questions that are out there, but also get the information out about some of the things we talked about, the long-term infrastructure decisions and what affects those and how uh, in conjunction, um, you know, we, we work with a lot of small businesses, uh, you know, almost 40% of what I buy goes to small businesses. So a combination of my suppliers, some of which are small business, ourselves, um, and then the customer as well to, to look at the challenges around labor and infrastructure uh, and make sure that overall the customers understand that. And so uh, it, it's a very effective tool. I, I'm looking forward to it. Um, and also I like the panel format as well. It's gonna be informal much less scripted, and we're going to be able to, uh, to answer any questions that are out there. All right. We'll be looking forward to it. Well, we've been talking with Paul Smith, Vice President and General Manager of BAE Systems Ship Repair. Thanks for being on the show, Paul. Thanks, guys, and I uh, really appreciate the time. All right. Our show coverage of Sea Air Space is sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries. And as always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Bye-bye.